0: And the cool thing that we showed, Nathan, that suggests a proof of concept is that we didn't increase net methylation in our participants, um, but we changed where those methylation sites were active. So we made them younger, not by just pushing methylation forward and laying down new methyl groups, but moving around those methyl groups into more favorable positions that ended up in a result, you know, in a, in a three-year drop in their age as compared to controls.
1: Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with hosts, Nathan Rose. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Metagenics Institute podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose. And returning today with me is Dr. Cara Fitzgerald. Hi, Cara.
0: Hey there, Nathan. It's great to be with you.
1: Thank you for joining. Me. It's fantastic we can connect again. It's been well. It's probably been I think it's two years, or but Has obviously it really with COVID, been? I think so. COVID sort of extends our perception of time. I think but <laughs> it's been a while. So welcome back. So um, you, sp- we've connected on a podcast previously, and you spoke about epigenetics. You've been following that for uh, a long period of time, and then you came out to Australia. Uh, where were you? We? Was it Melbourne? And we—that's right.
0: Yeah. We, where was I?
1: I was, in <laughs> so, I was in
0: a beautiful resort. <laughs> back when we all gathered in person, it was really yeah. Lovely. Back
1: in, yeah, old enough to remember when we used to meeting people, pers- persons. Um, uh, so, um, you've since been doing some research on epigenetics and, and lifestyle, and I mentioned it briefly on a podcast a few months ago with Tommy Wood uh-huh. that you, you were looking at it. And, yeah, um, you about pub- you're about to publish the research, as I understand, but we get a uh-huh. bit of a, a sneak peek of um, what included in some of the results. So
0: Perfect. Yep.
1: What motivated you to... Um, you know, move from, I suppose, practice, and it, it sounds like it took up a, a fair bit of time to to doing this research?
0: That's a really good question. Um, it, it, you know, it's just, it was started with a very, you know, how can I take care of my patients best kind of a question, um, which I think a lot of us as clinicians, really, we, we, we learn new things because we're motivated to deliver the best care possible. And for me, it was the epigenetic research just coming out at a breakneck pace. I mean, it's, and it's the, the whole omics revolution is extraordinary. The amount of, you know, new studies being published and, um, I think, you know, this was, I want, this is going back in the 2013 and, you know, that's a date that sticks in my mind as being, you know, sort of the year I decided I needed to sink into understanding what the heck epigenetics is. Um, And the reason it was really coming up is because of this concept of DNA methylation, which, you know, of all of the epigenetic marks is really the one that's been researched the most uh, heavily and is arguably sort of, the, well, it is the most resilient and um, uh, and therefore perhaps, you know, it's argued as as, as it being the most important. And you know, Nathan, that we're thinking about methylation and functional and integrative medicine, medicine all of the time. And my original postdoc uh, work at um, a clinical laboratory, you know, involved looking at the methylation cycle and the various amino acids and nutrients involved in methylation. And then later later on, we layered in, you know, single nucleotide polymorphisms, et cetera. And so it's a big area of focus for us. And I needed to layer in the information about epigenetics and see how my interventions were impacting epigenetic expression. And the I stopped I, you know I was stopped in my tracks because the bulk of the science certainly at that time and really probably still now is in cancer epigenetics so the yeah. you know, the tumor microenvironment really hijacks the epigenetic machinery and 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 manipulates genetic expression to its own nefarious end so you see genes that are hypermethylated and inhibited such as tumor suppressor genes we really want them on doing their work but the tumor microenvironment can shut them down and by extension actually Actually, turn on oncogenes. Um, So, hypomethylate, or you know, remove the methylation groups, and allow re-express, you know, expression of a previously suppressed oncogene. And and in that way, it really pushes cancer cancer forward. It's extraordinary. I mean, it's just it's such an important mechanism in in Mm. tumorigenesis. And so, when I looked at that, and I thought. You know, I'm I'm generally speaking pushing methylation forward in my patients. Am I possibly doing harm here in a certain subset? And so that really launched us into, um, you know, what has become, you know, really at this point in 2021, a kind of a career focus, and it's expanded since then. But I just want to stop and see if you have any questions there.
1: Yeah, yeah, um, I suppose the first thing that jumps out at me is uh, I suppose the, the general view in functional medicine or the understanding of methylation was really that sort of biochemical approach where everyone could probably yeah. visualised that the methylation cycle and we all uh, memorise all the, the nutrients, the B vitamins, um, the folates and, and we get to the SAMI that donates the methyl group. And I suppose we have tried to master that, which you know, which is understandable. But I suppose yes. the question is, where, where does that methyl group go? And is, is it going to the right spot? Is it going to the wrong spot? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think we've sort of mastered the the basics of what what the ingredients are necessary. But maybe um, we're adding too many ingredients, which we'll come to later on, not like you know, folate. But yeah, it's really now evolved, I suppose, to like a, a really more deeper understanding or or questioning of where what these methyl groups go, which genes are they. Um, methylate or not and what's the ramifications there yeah that's right (laughs) um so you you, you've started to look at a bit more global you mentioned yeah that there has been a fair bit of research on on cancer which is fascinating and um it's not i suppose a binary thing where there's either you know it's methylated hypermethylated or hypo it's depending on the gene and the tissue etc yes Uh, but you've now broadened your scope i suppose to Mm -hmm. look at this idea of epigenetic genetic clocks where they're starting to look at methylation patterns in um, yes. general health and aging so yeah i, I might use that as a, a sort of launching pattern can you describe the epigenetic clocks and i suppose the methylation drift as they call it that happens during yeah. aging
0: well let me just say that um because we, we we could spend our whole podcast just (laughs) on on the introduction. And I want to move into talking about the clocks, but um, you know, we started, so we devised a methylation diet and lifestyle program that we started to use in practice. And, uh, and we saw, you know, we saw good outcome with it. You know, it's a smartly designed diet and we can, we can talk about specifics later, but um, we, were we actually making a difference to epigenetics? You know, we could speculate. I mean, you can't, Mm. you know, you can't, You know, buy a new book without someone speculating that their intervention changes epigenetic expression. But we really wanted to know if it was. And, you know, just in in a miracle of events, um, you know, Brent Eck, the CEO of Metagenics, agreed to sponsor our research study. So you guys are, you know, we're just eternally indebted to the fact that this question was as curious to. To you, to to the scientists over at Metagenics, as it was to us, and so we were able to look at um, epigenetic expression. Really, the by and large, the entire methylome—it's or a good a massive chunk of the Um, methylome—and the reason. So, the 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 aging itself is um, the biggest risk factor for cancer and for all of the chronic diseases. Aging is and. It, be, it became the, the, the most reliable um, biological clocks. Um, so the, the most reliable ways that we can estimate a person's health span, um, uh, get an idea of how long that th- they'll be around, um, is using these DNA methylation, these epigenetic clocks. Um And so, having basically assessed the methylome, our first question was, um, have we influenced the, have have we influenced DNA methylation? Have we influenced a clock um, in a favorable way? And so, at that time, at the time of our study, uh, the, the, the clock that was available, there are since many more that we 'll talk about You're, you you 'd like me to cover our, was just the was the flagship Horvath clock um, that was established in 2013, and so we ran our study in 2016 and 2017, and that was the clock that we used. Actually, there was a second clock, the Hannum clock was available at that time, but that clock was trained on blood. It was established using blood, and we collected saliva um, which limits us, you know and now you know, in hindsight, we we could have run the Pheno Age and the Grim Age and some of the other really sort of more um ah. next generation clocks that are available now. But at the time saliva was the struck us as the smartest um specimen to use and our and and you know my scientific advisor Moshe Saf, who's a brilliant, you know, very highly regarded epigeneticist, recommended saliva. Um, So we went with that. And so it eliminated, it it minimized our ability to analyze using some of the other clocks, but we were able to use the Horvath clock. um, And that's looking at 353 methylation sites. And we collected at three different time points. Um, Our study was eight weeks long. So we got a baseline, we got an um, intermediate, and then we got a a follow-up analysis. And within that time, we saw the people that adhered to our program. Um, We were able to reverse their age. So you know a within group comparison so baseline to follow up by 2 years and as compared to our control group um their age was dropped by 3.23 years so we achieved wow. yeah we it was it was it was strongly statistically significant and very exciting it's um you know according to horvath it's we're you know we shouldn't be able to turn things around quite so Significantly, so we, we, it was a pilot study. We definitely want to 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 follow up and 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 confirm that we did this. Um, but our signal, we really feel like our signal is is absolutely strong, and and it's worth it for us to continue to research it. It's very exciting. One of the things that we did, I just want to tell you this because people mm. listening to our podcast will know this intuitively as functional and integrative. Providers, um, we think about biochemistry. Just like you said, we all know the methylation cycle. We know those enzymes. We know how we can move reaction kinetics. We're all influenced by Jeff Bland. We're influenced by um, Linus Pauling, going way back. We're influenced by Bruce Ames. You know, reaction kinetics—that if you supply an enzyme with the with the with the nutrients associated to move it forward, you're going to see that actually occur. You know, the rest of the world doesn't. Live in that pond, so we had mm-hmm. some questions around um, if we push it forward with, with with vitamins. You know, would we be pushing cancer forward? So this is a diet centered sort of orthomolecular approach, if you will. So our yeah. the the nutrients in our diet in, in our program are very high in methyl donors. So there's lots of greens, there's beet, there's liver for people who will eat it, but there are also these other nutrients called polyphenols that everybody's familiar with, but we see that they have epigenetic regulating activity as well. And so we we took this kind of orthomolecular functional approach to the diet and really turned the volume up specifically to address DNA methylation. And so it was very exciting for us to see that we succeeded in doing that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, oh. Really fascinated with that concept of the molecular diet, and we'll certainly come back to that. I might just um, come back to the Horvath clock, so people get a, yes. an understanding of it. Yes. Um, so, if we've got millions of genes and potentially millions of of sites for methylation, uh, but it's been narrowed down to three hundred fifty three, and I think the other clocks are even fewer, to like half a dozen or something. But let's start with the Horvath clock. So. Um, can you describe the sort of the, the evolution, the background of the discovery of these um, these sites, and um, yeah, why those sites, and do those sites mean anything in particular? It seems like a, a very small um, fraction of the the methylome. How did they sort of narrow down that? And what it's pretty mean?
0: interesting. I mean, I think it's just you know, Horvath is a brilliant biostatistician. I mean, it's a lot of statistical analysis. So there there are massive um repositories of um, DNA methylation information, Uniivaria you know, studies will op- upload to um, publicly accessible databases, mm-hmm. their DNA methylation data. So you could get hundreds of thousands of data points. And that's where Horvath started analyzing, um, looking across time, so from well, from in utero on, to, centenarians um and began to pull out well he he, his the first clock was 353 sites that closely associated with the aging journey over time so in utero there's actually a negative um and then you know centenarians you know it's positive plus um and so it's just an extraordinary feat of statistical analysis that is um that's well beyond my uh, pay grade yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was the first and the first and then the, after that came up the Hanum clock and that's got um, I think 71 uh, CPG sites we call them so it's the it's 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 where the the, the methyl the methyl group is on the fifth position of the cytosine when the cytosine is next to a guanine. So CPG it, it is, is what we refer to when we talk about the methylation. So I think, I think the Hanum clock has just 71. Both of these are the early clocks, and they most closely associate with chroni- chronological age. Um, and then the next generation clocks included include the pheno age and the grim age. And these guys are more predictors of um, mortality. Um, the likelihood of dying from any cause, um, the effects of aging, um, they factor in smoking, um, they're, they're what we will use in our ongoing research and any clocks, you know, yet to be developed, um, to, uh, to really nail down more solidly, um, perhaps more solidly. There's a caveat there, you know. What our intervention is doing. So there are more sophisticated clocks. They do require, unfortunately, blood. Um, so we can't we can't look at them with our current um, specimen. Um, but we, you know, we will and we will look at the Horvath, like the Hor- we will we'll mm-hmm. continue to look at the 2013, and we think that it's relevant and real um, because it's not a perfect association with chronological age. So even though it was created to be closely associated with chronological age, it's not perfect. And it's within that lack of 100% agreement that our interventions get to um, influence.
1: Yeah. So we yeah, can would-
0: absolutely still use it. And, you know, the jury's out as to which one of these clocks, even the newest ones, the coolest ones, you know, it's, is the strongest predictor. And and Horvath himself has, has said just that. So he certainly wouldn't throw out this early, you know, his, his flagship Horvath clock. And furthermore, you know, when you look in the research, the vast majority of it is still has been conducted on the Horvath clock.
1: Yeah. So, um, I'll just sort of try and reflect my understanding and just to sort of summarize that the research, the the various methods identify a number of sites say with Horvath that's 353 and then say at a young age, say, you know, one or two years of age, um, certain areas or genes within that 353 have a methyl group and others don't and as as we age there's a a methylation drift that where where some will lose the methyl groups and some will will gain them is that and that correlates pretty tightly um with chronological aging so as we get older there's this sort of drift in the the methylation pattern is that correct
0: you know what it, I wouldn't use the term drift because that's not okay. the accurate use of that term. Um, but it is correct what you're saying fundamentally. So you have a certain pattern in childhood. Actually, in childhood, there's there's more methylation activity, and 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 aging is generally a hypomethylation trend. Right. But there's also sort of an interesting trade-off. So genes that are on in childhood are actually inhibited in aging. And and so you see not just a a global trend towards hypomethylation, but you see some some specific changes with regard to aging um, as well. Almost in some ways an opposite pattern. Drift... By definition, in the world of epigenetics, means mm-hmm. that there's some there's some chaos to it. There's a, there's a, right. like a stochastic change, and that's it. That is not what's happening. It's 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 a predictable um, transition, which is why these clocks are so reliable.
1: Uh, okay. Yep. But there's an, an enough sort of um, variation, which we suggest is um, maybe due to, to diet and lifestyle and so forth, which could accelerate this this trajectory towards um, you know an, an aged methylome, so to speak.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So definitely environmental inputs. Yep. There's genetic influence as well.
1: Yeah, that's but fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and just finally on on this concept. You mentioned saliva versus blood. It seems like different tissues can be measured and um, they, different tissues can have different uh, uh, epigenetic ages in the same person. Like a, a centenarian, yes. I think their cerebellum was young but, you know, yes. the liver was old. So um, is that something to consider going forward? Like yeah, obviously what well, tissue do see- you measure?
0: That's another reason why the the original flagship Hanum clock is pretty fabulous. It was. It's its other name is the Pan Tissue Clock. Ah, uh, that's right. So it's pretty reliable in 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 a variety of specimen. Um, but yeah, you're you're absolutely right that organs can age at different rates, and probably blood is the most reliable. I know recently, uh-huh. um, Hanum was 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 excuse me horvath was in a meeting with 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 some friends of mine who are working on a study um and he thinks buccal buccal swab so the buccal epithelium might also be very reliable actually he argued for collecting both and so we're sort of thinking about that because because different interventions will impact the buccal epithelium differently than blood so it depends for so for instance there are estrogen re- receptors on epithelial cells but there are not right. on um you know, red blood cells. So, yeah. yeah. So, you know, you're just you're going to just see different activity depending on specimen. But we obviously want to minimize specimen requirements, and it's certainly easier to collect a buckle swab. So, if you're looking at a massive study, you're going to get more adherence with the buckle swab. Um, and that was one of our reasons for going with saliva. We were thinking about adherence as well.
1: Yeah. Sure. All right. So now, I want to. You, you mentioned you, you got a, a pretty. Strong signal from your your pilot trial, um, which is fantastic, and that's almost in contrast to from my you know a rough look at this area that it seems like from what Horth is saying that lifestyle interventions etc didn't haven't yet seemed to really shift move the needle too much on some of these um, epigenetic clocks. So per- perhaps before we describe your uh, results, can you outline what has been done so far and maybe. Sh- if you got any idea of the magnitude, because it seems like you've got a, a pretty good results where um, the previous research is a little bit sort of underwhelming and um, yeah, maybe that's right. It
0: doesn't mm-hmm. give you encouragement
1: to that yeah. these interventions are worth doing anything. But um, yep. yeah, so what's yep. the state of play, and then we can look at your your research.
0: Yeah, okay. So listen, I want to just go back to that drift thing that you mentioned, and yeah. then I'll move over and talk about the previous. I just want to say, you know, when I say that these the 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 aging looks epigenetically like quite predictable in the changes that occur. I mean, that's a, a profound statement and I want to underscore it. it. It suggests that aging itself isn't stochastic, isn't drift, isn't just due mm-hmm. to the damages that we encounter in our life. It There's some kind of a predictable pattern and that's what we're starting to uh, really, kind of agree with it's a it's a it's a hypothesis that's been around for a long time, um, maybe not a long time, but but you know in the 2000s for maybe the last 20 years or so that aging is a programmed event, um, and that if we understand that program, we can actually go in there and reverse it. Whereas if it is you know if it is dependent just on the fates of our exposures and our you know the our 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 stress burdens et cetera, if it's simply um, relating to drift or stochastic damage, um, you know, it's much more random, but it looks like aging is probably, at least in part, you know, predictably programmed. So kind of a big yeah. deal.
1: I think so. Yeah, it's a good point because it's something that I've a little bit been stuck on over the years, this idea of anti-aging and reverse aging, um, you know, as an industry, it's, whilst it's attractive, it, yeah, this, I suppose, challenges that in the view that Yes, it's it's part of life. Is getting old, and um, there's a program there. It's not just your, your age because you do all the wrong things. It might accelerate the aging. Right. So
0: it's probably yes. not going to reverse it. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. So certainly, our our lifestyle choices will absolutely accelerate or not. Um, but you know, a, you know, aggressive reversal. Um, could happen if we are looking at a program. So that's that's kind of an aside, but I just wanted to
1: yeah, pull that no, out and I mean, mention it. Yeah, I did point that out.
0: Um, so talking about the uh, previous literature on diet and lifestyle, yeah, you know, Horvath published on it, for, and, you know, folks out of Horvath's lab, um, and elsewhere, you know, again, going into these massive repositories where there are, um, you know, where other scientists, you know, l- make available their um various you know dna methylation arrays for 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 other scientists to explore um Horvath looked at diet and looked at lifestyle and Um, Did see some favorable movement in those um, engaging in exercise, in those with a higher degree of education, in those eating a healthier diet, consuming more vegetables, um, as measured by beta carotene. That's a point that he makes, not just Mm. by a food frequency questionnaire, because we all uh, mm-hmm. Say that we're eating loads of of, of veggies when in fact sure. we're not. But as measured by beta carotene, there's a there was a little bit of a signal. He speaks about being disappointed in that signal. You know, you know, it wasn't it wasn't strong. I mean, in his opinion, you know, diet and lifestyle just weren't big factors. Um, they were they are factors, but they weren't big factors. And so, you know, again, these aren't specifically. Um, these interventions are sort of generally thought of as healthy um, approaches, not specifically designed to kind of massage and optimize DNA methylation as, as ours was. So yeah, yeah not, not there's, well, first of all, there's not much out there on diet and lifestyle. And secondly, what has been isn't really strong. There was a there was a, a study published um, recently looking at, um, sort of a Mediterranean light diet, you know, it wasn't it wasn't oh, yeah. something that we might prescribe to our patients. It was just a a, a relatively um, easy Mediterranean intervention, and that showed some favorable shift in um, epigenetic expression and DNA methylation. And in one subpopulation, it seemed to be associated with an age reduction. Um, it was in Europe. Um, I think there were Italians. I want to say there were Polish Polish people and you know one other country was involved and they actually provided the Mediterranean diet. Plus uh, okay. they gave vitamin D. Um, and just remind me, Nathan, and I'll get that citation to you. And I think in Polish women specifically, there seemed to be associated with the diet plus vitamin D, some age reversal. So that was a newer study.
1: Um, and uh, there's... Suggestions around stress and maybe sleep, so outside of diet and yep. exercise, um, and I think even mechanistically, like one of the the methylation sites is a glucocorticoid receptor. So, can you describe the the views of like stress and, and aging and epigenetics?
0: Yeah. So, in the on on the Horvath flagship clock, what we looked at twenty five percent of those. CPG sites are what they call glucocorticoid response elements. So that means it's not a glucocorticoid like gene itself, but the site is um, upregulated by a by something associated with glucocorticoids. So it's so it's so it's the glucocorticoid stimulus of inflammation, for instance, or the glucocorticoid stimulus of 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 um, you know IgF1 or whatever you know, whatever it might be. So they're glucocorticoid response elements. So these are these are the the stress response turning up gene expression in a wide variety of genes, not just glucocorticoids. Right, Does that make right. sense? But if we're yeah, 25%. Are associated with it. I mean, when I read that study, you know, it just stopped me in my tracks. I mean, we, you know, we pay lip service to meditation and turning Mm. the volume down on our lives and, um, you know, the importance of quiet time. But anyone, again, delivering patient care knows that for many of our patients, it's the final stop on the journey that they actually consider stress as a variable. Everybody wants their supplements. Everybody, you know, people are into their dietary changes, etc. cetera. Um, maybe they want their medication interventions. They want their labs, lab tests, but to um, really grasp the impact of stress in their lives as a key and profound player in what ails them is oftentimes in my experience something that isn't, it's not as sexy to look at. But but what this shows us is that it has a big important place in the aging journey. And again, I'll underscore that aging is the most significant risk factor for all chronic disease. So if there's one, you know, sure bet, if you can turn the volume down on your aging um, rate that you're going to increase resilience across the board.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's interesting, I suppose, as we, you know, learn more and more and become more and more specialized, it's almost the antithesis that we um I can know, in general um we it can is. help all those conditions yeah um, it is, so it yeah, is almost,
0: it's true it's a little bit uncomfortable to say we could go after this one risk factor and really make a difference across the board <laughs> it is it's not it's yeah it's antithetical to to how we think as as you know in functional and systems medicine. yeah
1: so with all that in mind it's i think it's really framed up the importance of all those components and um maybe not overdoing any one of them like we're not getting too into the woods about you know the specifics of a diet etc um that's sort of the framework for your study so can you describe now this study and particularly like the interventions that you um prescribed
0: sure yeah uh so it's a it's 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 a diet and um You know, that was the, one of the larger components with, you know, methyl donor heavy diet, very high in vegetables, about a requirement of about seven cups a day plus, um, you know, some beets for good measure on top of that. Um, lots of greens, lots of colorful veggies, polyphenol rich veggies, and, you know, servings (laughs) of what we're calling these methylation adaptogens. And those are specific polyphenols that have, um, literature on them, mostly in vitro or animal studies, but, you know, s- nonetheless, they've been studied to show that they impact DNA methylation. So we included those in abundance. Um, it does have some animal protein. It has some eggs, of course. Eggs are really rich in choline, uh, yeah. which is an important methyl donor. Liver, for those that we can, we can get to eat a little bit of liver. You don't have to consume it all the time. You know, just a a, a couple servings a week. Um, we also, again, looking at the the impact of stress, we included a meditation, a twice daily meditation, simple, very simple meditation practice. Um, we paid attention to sleep. Um, Poor quality sleep absolutely accelerates aging via a variety of measurements, so um, globally changes DNA methylation and specifically can accelerate aging as measured, um, at least in one study by the Horvath clock. Um, Meditation has been shown, a a variety of types of meditation um, has been shown to slow down aging as measured by um, DNA methylation clocks. what else? Uh, so we exercise. have oh, and exercise. Yeah, so exercise yeah. again. <clears throat> you know, good research on it, favorably augmenting DNA methylation vari- via a variety of measurements, as well as um, slowing down the aging process.
1: And what sort of exercise recommendations did you, did you give?
0: We very very simple. We just had we wanted people to achieve at least five days a week for thirty minutes, um, perceived exertion of sixty to eighty okay. percent.
1: Um, And did you have like health coaches that have regular sessions? Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So we used our nutrition team here at our clinic. We've got um, a residency program. So we've got maybe, uh, I think we've got four um, sort of attending nutrition, full nutritionists on practice. And we've got a residency program where we train um, CNS and, and, and a few other credentials they, they track with us. So we've got a kind of a nice, group of really interested and committed practitioners and we kind of we um accessed them we invited them to participate and they helped the um the study participants in uh, applying the diet how to make it realistic for their lives answered questions they also guided them on the exercise requirements and so on and so forth and they had a there was a minimal requirement to meet with the nutritionist um, at the start of the study and then as needed They were a very important part. In fact, we're absolutely, we we are um, kind of crunching our adherence data now. So we'll have more to report on that later. Uh,
1: Yeah. Curious on that. And you had a control group. Was that just a, a Mm -hmm. we did have a control control? group.
0: Yeah. It was passive control. Let me say to you that our study is pretty complex. I mean, doing dietary interventions is they're notoriously fraught. Um, But, you know, what chance you know what are the chances me as a clinician you know i'm going to get to do such sophisticated um, <laughs> research right and and by hook or by crook i was going to get these participants as much as i could to adhere and so we had our nutritionists within the structure of the study really basically stick to these guys like glue because i wanted them to absolutely do the best job i wanted us to we couldn't. You can't encourage them. I mean, the study is not like practice where you can cajole. Yeah, all sorts. of You have to stick to a script. But I wanted that. That I wanted regular contact to support them in success, and not just hand them this sophisticated diet and lifestyle program and say, you know, good luck. It would have yeah. failed. And so we did it at NUNM. We did it at the Health Guy Institute in Portland, Oregon. And my co PI out there at NUNM, Ryan Bradley. um Really basically kind of paid attention to us. He was, he was a little bit dubious. I mean, he realized, I mean, he he does a lot of diet and lifestyle studies and he knew this was a high bar. Um, And and I think, you know, it it speaks for itself, the outcome we got. um, And we're crunching those adherence data now and it'll be, it'll be really kind of cool to hopefully it'll be cool. I don't, I'm not sure what we're going to find yet, but, but I suspect we'll see that the, you know, those, those who really participated with the nutrition team achieved best
1: outcome. Yes. And you also supplied some, pardon me, some supplements and probably not your, your quintessential methylating nutrients, your high dose, you know, folate and B12, et cetera. Um, So can you describe what was provided for supplementation?
0: Sure, yeah. So, we already know in the literature that, you know, if you give folate supplements or B12 supplements, you're going to move methylation forward, right? We know that as evidenced by homocysteine, but we also know that epigenetically that you can you can change that. And we know, as I started the beginning of our conversation with, you know, there is some concern in certain populations that you can um, probably hypermethylate tumor suppressor genes and um, potentially push cancer forward, Um so we didn't want to go with supplements. We wanted to see if we could impact methylation, you know, d- using other interventions. And to that end, we used a lactobacillus plantarum, um, which is the metagenics um, in- ultra Ultraflora intensive Um there's some literature suggesting that Lactobacillus plantarum, in the presence of sufficient pABA, will increase folate. We did find that. We did find circulating methylated folate in our study ah. participants was significantly higher. Um, yes. Of course, they were eating. You know, they were eating greens, et cetera. Um, yes. But we did supply the Lactobacillus plantarum with that as a possible outcome, and we also gave the the um, methylation adaptogens. We get we used phytoGanics, the phytoGanics powder, because that's basically that's a polyphenol concentrate. I mean, it's just a cool product. Um, po- and do you want me to talk about polyphenols now? Yeah, what yeah, said- briefly.
1: Yeah. yeah that's okay.
0: Okay. So, so, so methyl donors are going to you know ultimately produce s-adenosylmethionine and that's you know going to push methylation forward or or allow methyl groups to be placed onto you know the the cpgs or the cytosine but then these adaptogens these polyphenol compounds are uh seem to finesse you know where i mean some of them inhibit dna methyltransferase um So there's a family of DNA methyltransferase enzymes, and they do different things. Some of them maintain methylation marks. Some of them create new methylation marks on DNA, depending on the family member. and it looks like these polyphenols can can kind of push that forward or inhibit in different conditions. Generally, it appears that they inhibit DNA methyltransferase and allow for the re-expression. And of course, again, a lot of this research is done looking at different cancers and in cell studies and so forth where these polyphenols allow for the re-expression of healthy genes. Um, and so our thinking was, we'll give the methyl donors and then we'll put in sort of the the guidance of these amazing polyphenol nutrients and see what happens. Um, and we knew, you know, we know green, all of these, all of these polyphenols have long, um, uh, you know, traditional use histories. So curcumin is a major one. Uh, yeah. green tea is a major one. Uh, one of my favorites is rosmarinic acid in rosemary or thyme. um, um Black cumin seed is a is, is an interesting one we were just talking about today, but it goes on and on. There's lots of bu- dianomethane or sulforaphane. I mean, mm. it really kind of goes on and on. These guys are, and they sh- they're they shown to be epigenetically active. And the cool thing that we showed, Nathan, that suggests a proof of concept is that we didn't increase net methylation in our participants. Um but we changed where those methylation sites were active. So we made them younger, not by just pushing methylation forward and laying down new methyl groups, but moving around those methyl groups into more favorable positions that ended up in a result, you know, in a, in a three-year drop in their age as compared to controls. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. So of those 353 sites so many so, so many percent say 70 percent or something had a methyl group you didn't yeah. jump it up to 75 percent it stayed at 70 percent. but the, where they were was on different genes
0: yeah yeah that's yeah. it and i think that's a reasonable way to think about it yeah so we kind of we we finessed um dna methylation in our population to reflect something more favorable at least that's what it looks like we did
1: yeah okay and, um and i said earlier we can't really anti-age but It looks like we did epigenetically, or we you Um, you did epigenetically. So, can you describe the results there?
0: Um, I'm sorry. Ask me that one more time.
1: Uh, Oh, sorry. So I I said earlier that you know we can't really anti-age, but I I could be wrong there because the research your your results show that there was a a regression in epigenetic age.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. So we could say that you know I mean what we're we're titling our paper um, you know tentative reversal um right Twitter is our title i'll give it to you we just actually updated potential reversal of epigenetic age using a diet and lifestyle intervention a pilot randomized clinical trial yeah so potential reversal um we it, it appears to be reversal because it was only eight weeks and we slowed things down you know considerably but obviously there would be a limit otherwise people yes. would we turn people <laughs> back into button. stem cells <laughs> yeah right they'd just be like some oozing stem cells in a <laughs> you know, on the, on the floor. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it it either we slowed or actually reversed it. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And how far was the change?
0: How far was the change? Yeah.
1: yeah. And so I think was it the controls aged? Oh um, yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. So exactly. the,
0: the controls non-significantly aged a little bit, um, and then a the study population as compared to controls um, lost. 3.23 years compared wow. to controls that's because the controls sort of non significantly aged a bit but when you look at the study population as compared to themselves
1: the they decreased
0: by almost 2 years and wow. that is um it didn't quite achieve what we accept as sort of a you know a 0.05 level of significance yeah. but it's a small study and so it was a strong te- trend at 0.06
1: yeah and how many participants were in each arm?
0: So, in our control, we had twenty, um, okay. and in our in our in our study population, eighteen finished. So, we started out with forty three adults, and we had sure. um, eighteen finish
1: yep. in the study. Now, you also did other biomarkers and questionnaires to compare yep. and contrast to your um, epigenetic clock. So, can you describe mm-hmm. what you looked at and what the results found?
0: We still, we still have a lot of data crunching to do. It's it's, okay. it's pretty exciting. Um. I, so when we looked at subjective questionnaires, there wasn't anything really remarkable. These were, I should point out, these were a real, these are healthy guys. In fact, in right. some cases, I would say that they were really healthy. I mean, we recruited them from gyms. Um, we we use the naturopathic, so NUNM, Health Gut Research Institute, is at a is at my alma mater, a naturopathic medical college. And so they went to the clinic um, and recruited there. And so so the baseline, I think our population was above average healthy. I mean, we could actually see that in their baseline numbers. Their, you know, blood sugar um, on average was the low 90s. Their A1C was well within normal limits. And, you know, their numbers were good. They couldn't be on, um, they just, they couldn't have comorbidities. Uh, you know, we accepted I don't even, I'd have to look at our original IRB, but you know, we, 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 we really weeded out, um, uh, to, to obtain a healthy population. And so we couldn't expect things to wildly shift. Um, but we did see increase, increase in a significant increase in, um, 5-methyltetrahydrofolate. And we saw a significant decrease in triglycerides by about 25% in the, um, as compared to themselves at baseline, our study populations' cholesterol LDL dropped a little bit. Um, we saw some trends towards, I think, increased energy and improved mood, but nothing, nothing really remarkable. Yeah, uh, sure. but again, they were, you know, they were healthy guys.
1: Yeah. So, were they uh, at baseline? Was their DNA epigenetic age younger than their chronological age?
0: No, actually. Well, it depends. I mean, I think in some cases, yeah. And in some cases, and in some cases, you know, no.
1: Okay. Yeah. So I'd be curious to see what happens. A good question. Yeah. With a similar intervention with uh, maybe a, a less healthy population, you might see a, a well, larger change.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's right. Well, that's so it's one of the reasons I want to really underscore that we were working with a healthy population because it's even less expected to see um, shifts. There is a pretty cool study that came out looking at vitamin D deficiency in um, an unhealthy population. So these were obese, um, African American, Americans who I believe if they were not diabetic, what were they? They were at least on the cardiometabolic continuum and they were deficient in vitamin D. So it was an unhealthy population. And in that study, which ran longer than ours, um, by quite a bit, they, uh, also found a significant age reversal.
1: Okay. Fascinating. So yeah, the the results, are. really impressive and um so i suppose it leads on to my next question what would you like to see in the future with um would you are you going to get involved in the future in in more research or what would you like to see in in the future in terms of lifestyle and um, these epigenetic clocks
0: well i want to keep studying it um we're working on an app right now um so i wanted to study it in um in a few different ways. Um, I want to train clinicians. So I know I was out there in Australia. Hopefully I can come again. Um, and we, we, you know, we can do some web-based training, but I want people to really understand how to use this in practice. Um, we'll have an app available and we'll, we'll data collect, we'll get IRB approval and, and, and just continue to pay attention to outcome and publish on it and see, um, how people are responding. Um, you can, in clinic practice, we layer this in. So we use the methylation diet and lifestyle principles with all the patients, but we, we, tweak based on this individual sitting in front of us so the diet itself is sort of keto leaning there's a little bit of intermittent fasting Um, it's low glycemic it's hypoallergenic so the diet as it and its baseline is really sort of a healthy general intervention but you can turn the volume up you can do time restricted eating or intermittent fasting you can you know go into full ketosis you can pull food maps out if need be you can you know pull out hype you know allergens, et cetera, like it's, 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 it's imminently modifiable and it will be interesting to kind of data gather in, in a more uh, precise way um, how people are responding and what they're doing. And, um, it would just be nice to make it available to, um, clinicians in practice and just, you know, data capture and, and, and see what we find. Concurrently, um, we, if we got funding again, I, I think doing another randomized control trial would be, would be fabulous. And we, you know, we might tweak a few things. We might run a little longer. Certainly we would want, um, a larger population. We would want to include women, the reason we didn't is because we used a middle-aged population. These were men aged 50 to 72. Um, because methylation changes with age, it sort of deteriorates with age, we wanted a middle-aged population. And if we had women in our study along with men, we would be teasing out what was premenopause, perimenopause and postmenopause and with such a few number of individuals that I think that that would really be confounding for us but with a larger study population obviously we need to um, see what happens with women.
1: Yeah so now with the the epigenetic tests do you see utility now in practice? Um, If so do they replace or uh, do they add to? So um, I suppose if you're measuring patients or uh, considering their the methylation status, um, is it ready for use? These uh, clocks,
0: you know, I think so. I, I yeah, I I, I I, think so. So, one of the ones that I get myself is called My DNA Age, that's available. That's from a lab called um, Zymo. Actually, I think they might have a commercial name. My DNA, they call it themselves epimorphy it looks like okay. but it's it's the but the lab is 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 also that's their own by zymo which is a larger research lab um right. so i think yeah there you know we're gonna see more and more come out um true diagnostic here in the states i'm just really excited about they're doing some extraordinary work there um those are available um Hopefully they're available. You you guys have to have some available. I'm not sure what's available in Australia off the top of yeah, my head. Um, um, HK Epitherapeutics out of Hong Kong, is Moshe Sev's lab. Again, our scientific oh, right. advisor. Ah,
1: uh, yep. yes, yeah.
0: Yep. Um, and those have those have really good price points. Epigenetic um, testing is used in different arenas. So, in cancer, um, there's a there's a, a colonoscopy replacement test in the States called Coligard. You may have it available there that looks at methylation of a handful of tumor suppressor genes. Um not quite a full replacement, but you could use it in right. off off years, I suppose. But uh so we, we will see more and more. And I would I'm I'm eager to um To look at them and create create tests that are have a high degree of clinical utility and you know actionable information. So I'm paying very careful attention, um, and you know hope to be involved in 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 the rollout of some of those.
1: Brilliant. Um, And if I can just give a gratuitous plug for our congress this year, we've got um, Mershi coming to well, not coming to Australia anymore, but he'll present online. Um, He's going to talk about genetics and cancer. Yeah, yeah, I'm really looking forward to him listening to him speak.
0: That's great. I am so I'm thrilled to hear that. Folks, you will absolutely love hearing Dr. Seth present. He's such a good presenter and he's a brilliant scientist.
1: Yeah, he's a lovely guy. Um, so, yeah, I think we've covered most areas and it's been really enlightening to hear your views on aging and um, I suppose using these methylation adaptogens. So any sort of closing remarks that you want to, again, underscore or in key takeaways you just want to reinforce?
0: Well, I'll tell you what. I think um, functional medicine, integrative medicine clinicians, I just, we're just, we're, we're well positioned to incorporate these into practice and to um, really go the distance with making a difference in our patients' lives. I mean, I just... I think we're well positioned. And, you know, the, the other thing is that, you know, so as I said, aging is the biggest risk factor for all chronic disease and all chronic disease is immunological in, in, in nature. And so, you know, when we think about being in the midst of COVID, um, if we address aging, you know, again, if we move in this direction, we're going to build resilience there as well. So, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of an extraordinary web.
1: Mm, Well said. Oh, and finally, you hinted offline about a book. Can you (laughs) hint about it online for me?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I'm working on writing it all down um, for regular people so they can jump right in and have Ah. access to this document.